Hello everyone and welcome to Glam City, another show we're rounding out to the end of season three. I'm Tamsin Peach and I'm here today with the wonderful Chelsea Barnett. Hello Chelsea. Hello Tamsin. Chelsea is a new recruit to the hosting uh, deck at Glam City. If you don't know what Glam means. I can uh, inform everybody. Glam refers to galleries, libraries, archives and museums. So we're very welcoming to our Glam family. Our Glam fam, that's right. And what we do here on Glam City is take you behind the scenes with the people tasked with preserving our culture. Today we want to welcome from the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the wonderful Steve Miller. Hello, Steve. Hello, thanks. Thank you have a wonderful voice for radio. Yeah, it's very nice. Gorgeous. So the Art Gallery of New South Wales, as anyone in Sydney knows, sits slightly out of sight from Sydney's main attractions, but it's never out of mind. Across from Speaker's Corner, the Art Gallery is the second oldest in Australia. I did not know that. And the National Gallery of Victoria, claiming this title of the National Institution, was founded... Ten years. Ten years before, and every year counts, doesn't it? It does, <laughs> particularly with the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry, every, every year counts. You have the distinction that the Art Gallery of New South Wales has never been moved from its original site. No, that's right. As you know, Melbourne was originally with the library and the museum, so it was originally truly glam. They were all in the same building, and then in the 60s it moved to St Kilda Road, but we've always been, since the 1880s, on site. And Steve, you are the head of the National Art Archive and the Capon Research Library. Mm-hmm, that's right. What's in the Capon Research Library? Well, that's named in honour of our former director, Edmund Capon, and his wife, Joanna. Um, and that is a kind of fine arts library, uh, which has been uh, collecting books since the 1870s. In fact, when the gallery was first buying artworks, it was also buying books. So it's a really quite an old um, collection, but it's you know it's been continually added to, uh, and represents all the kind of movements of contemporary art. So that's one part of our kind of resource. The other is uh, our archive, which is the largest collection of art archives in Australia. Um, and very cheekily, about three or four years ago, we decided to claim the turf and call ourselves the National Art Archive. So here we have G and L and A come together. Absolutely. And also M in a way, because I suppose we're not a museum in the way that, you know, a kind of um, collection uh, of museums that traditionally are in Australia, but we're a museum in the way that Europeans understand an art museum. So we could claim the whole turf as well. This is glam (laughs) in its entirety. That's exciting. Well, it does say something interesting about how those different components of that acronym have, as you said, they were, when institutions were founded in the 19th century, they were all together there at the heart of what a cultural institution was. And then they've sort of fragmented in some ways. And when we were founded... Um, We acquired a lot of, I mean, the Australian Museum was already existing and the State Library were were existing as really kind of very important foundational cultural institutes. But when we were founded, we did collect a lot of things that people didn't know where to put them. So, in fact, the first um, Shakespeare folio, which is now in the State Library, was originally in our collection and then we gave it to the State Library. We had things like the first Victoria Cross that was awarded for valent action outside of a war situation. Um, So we had lots of these weird things. Some of them are still in the archive, 
some of them have been repatriated to more appropriate kind of cultural homes for them. But our archive is full of, you know, you could say going behind the scenes or digging. It's also full of lots of skeletons in the closet as well. (laughs) Okay, so um, we need to press on to find some of these skeletons. But Steve, how did you end up working at the art gallery? Purely accidentally. I was living overseas and I came back summer holidays and I got a bit bored and I don't know who it was said, do you want to do some part-time work because the library was relocating and I just started working there part-time. I didn't go back overseas as I'd planned. I really liked being back in Sydney and I was then offered a more permanent job and then the head of the library said, We have, in fact, all these fantastic archives, which we've been accumulating since the 1950s. Would you think of going and studying archives? And I really didn't know anything about archives. I know I liked libraries, and I knew that I liked working with that kind of material. So I said, why not? So I just went and did part-time the archive diploma, which was then at New South Wales Uni. And so I kind of fell into the job. I never imagined I'd be working as an archivist. You have a degree in classics and Greek, is that correct? I have weird degrees that don't really fit you for any true, honest work. So I actually have a degree in theology as well. But my arts degree, the major is in um, classics, so, so Latin and Greek. And so that's what I thought I might be doing, teaching. I didn't really want to teach, so (laughs) there weren't many opportunities. (laughs) I like this idea of the accidental archivist, though. It's a lovely, the materials captured you and the institution kind of beguiled you. It leaves space for serendipity, which is a lovely thing to think about. But you know, with my colleagues that I work with all together, there's about eight of us sharing five full-time positions. And I would say that nearly all of our team fell into archives or librarianship accidentally. So one trained as a landscape architect. Oh, wow. One trained as a doctor. One initially went into law. And they found that they really didn't like those professions that they were training for. But what they did like is kind of libraries and archives. And so I think the glam sector has that. A lot people think, you know, we'll go into something that's more financially lucrative because glam is not really up there. (laughs) Um, But it's immensely satisfying in terms of, you know, dealing with great material and helping the public in, in really kind of nice and interesting ways. So tell us about some of that material. You were speaking of the skeletons before. So basically our collection has two components. So we have our institutional archive, so everything you could imagine that the institution has accumulated, all the things like our minutes, our correspondence, glass plate negatives, you know, early views of the gallery, audiovisual material. So there's lots of skeletons there, of course, because the museum tries to give the front of this great stately institution, you know, you walk up the neoclassical entrance of the gallery and it's kind of this elevated institution that shows fine art and has this magisterial voice. But the archive, of course, shows that there are lots of other things under that. There's lots of compromise, there's lots of debate. It's not as solid as the building would suggest. So the institutional archive really kind of gives you the full history of the institution and how, you know, even the purchases of artworks are often a compromise. 
and it maintains all those things. These days, we're much happier to say this is how an institution exists. In the past, I think they wouldn't have liked a lot of that material to be on display. So, for instance, one of the the first abstract Australian artwork that we have in our collection is by Eric Wilson. But we purchased that really as an educational picture to be taken to regional New South Wales. And the archive shows that the trustees said this is not to be put on the wall as art. This is purely to take out to schools and show them how degenerate modern art can be. You know, it's that kind of stuff. So we have a lot of those interesting stories. And then apart from our institutional archive, we also collect So we're a collecting institution, as lots of people in the glam sector are. Like, I'm the grim reaper of art archives. So if I have a visit, um, artists normally think, oh, my God, he must think that I'm about to die or, you know, my partner's (laughs) about to die. So we go to artists and we say, can we have all your stuff? Can we have your diaries, your journals, Um, anything that will give to researchers and the general public a deeper understanding of your work and why it's made and how it sits in the in the broad culture. So we have about 400 individual collections of archives. So they could be the personal archives of artists. They are sometimes the archives of galleries. Waters Gallery, a very prominent Sydney gallery, is closing at the end of this year. That's been in existence since the 1960s. And we will get their entire gallery archive. It could be an art society. One of the most important ones we have is the Sydney Camera Circle, which was founded just before the First World War, and we have their archive. So it's a mixture of collections. So they're the two core elements of our archive, institutional and collected. Institutional for us is really important because, as you mentioned, we've been on the same site So we've preserved all our records. Unfortunately, the National Gallery of Victoria, which predates us, when they moved to their site in St Kilda, a lot of their historical material went to the public records office and a lot of their historical catalogue stayed in the State Library of Victoria. But just because of the quirk of history, all our records are on site and we manage them ourselves in agreement with the state records. They're very happy for us to keep those historical records provided we give you know, public access to them and care for them in the way that state records legislation requires us to care for them. As an institutional historian, I'm salivating at that <laughs> prospect. But I'm also really interested in what the art gallery itself as an institution, how it deals with its own past. Is it integrated into the into forms of display other opportunities the public has to access that restricted to being um, researchers? Or does it integrate into kind of public exhibition, especially in the context of the proposed changes to the gallery? Mm -hmm. Very much now it is being integrated into public exhibitions. And I think there's been a cultural shift in archives. I think in the past, things were always put in. So you might get a really lovely letter from an artist or a really nice notebook or journal, something that is often quite decorative or beautiful to look at. But those elements were incorporated, I think, as a secondary thought. I actually see younger curators now putting together entire proposals for exhibitions from the archive. So they interrogate the archive and they say, what can we actually 
put out of this archive to make an exhibition in itself. And they're also much more confident to show those skeletons in the closet. They don't want to just have that very kind of magisterial voice. They're quite happy to show that the museum is like everything else, that taste is, involves all these different things, that we get it right sometimes and we get it wrong very often as well. So with the new, particularly with the new building and the new hang, there'll certainly be breakouts from the archive that tell a kind of counter stories to the traditional art historical tale. So yeah, there's lots of possibilities. And now is a great time, I'm, I'm sure you realize, for archives. Archives are kind of sexy. People are interested in them. And I found with our archive, it's received more interest than any other time that I've worked at the gallery. <laughs> a, story, a, a sentence no one ever thought they would say. No, but it's true. <laughs> it's and true, it's happening yeah. all over the world. Yeah. This kind of greater self-awareness on the part of the institution, how do you think that shapes the public's engagement with the institution? From my interaction with the public, they still want a curated experience. So they still want us to do wonderful exhibitions, select great works for them, and they, they still very much value the role of the curator doing that, you know, putting together tight, interesting shows, taking them on a journey. But the public also want to have their self-directed journey as well, you know, and I think the archive can allow them to do that. Whether we have the physical objects there or whether we put them online so that, you know, we have, we have most of our collection is online, about 60% we have images and we're just planning now to put a lot of the archive online. <laughs> You're listening to Glam City on 2SCR 107.3. To download this podcast, head to 2SCR.com or check us out on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Glam City. This pod is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SCR. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find us. Today we're talking to Steve Miller from the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And on Sunday, Australia commemorated the end of World War I, 100 years since Germany signed the armistice. And when we think of war, we rarely think about art. How did the gallery commemorate the anniversary of the start of World War I four years ago, Steve? I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but we're a bit slow off the mark. And so you did we, have 100 years notice. I know, but we agreed to a lot of major loans of our work to other galleries that were holding big exhibitions. And then we thought, oh, no, you know, we've given all our key works. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And we really didn't think that we had a great deal in the archive. And our head of collections at that moment said, I would really like to tell a more varied picture about war. And she said to me, is there anything in the archive? And then we took that and we interrogated the archives and we found really an amazing wealth of material. We just hadn't looked at some of our collections from that perspective. In the end, we decided to do an online exhibition called Hidden War. And it was this idea of the hidden impact of the war. And we chose four artists that are very well represented in the archive. So one of them was Cecil Bostock, who is a photographer. He was in France and in Belgium. He was injured in a minor way, 
but he was injured very badly psychologically. And when he came back to Australia, his life basically fell apart. And I had dealings with his family, which were profoundly moving, because that scarred not just one generation, but three generations of his family. And so we were able to draw from his archive. We found war diaries, letters. Then we chose Weaver Hawkins, who was in the war as well, almost left for dead at the Battle of the Somme, had major, major injuries, had to reteach himself how to paint with his left arm, but processed it in a way that really made him a much more complete and uh, lovable human being. And all of his life was this lived out of this conviction that I will not live in a world like the world that created that war. So he was very politically active. His art always had a political edge. And so we had these wonderful things, these little watercolours that he painted just a month before the battle in which he was so injured, photographs of him before and after. And then we had an Australian sculptor who was living in Italy at the time and basically was working on a major commission for the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which got interrupted because of the war and eventually was not completed, unfortunately. And she nursed during the war. After the war, she actually flirted with fascism. So she was an interesting story as well. The things that came out of the war and the disrupted world that came out of the war and the political turmoil. And the last artist was Frank Hinder. And I think he was maybe seven or eight. And we had all his childhood journals and sketchbooks. Um, and they were fascinating because it showed how the war impacted on the imagination of a very creative child uh, whose father was a doctor and for him, in these childhood sketchbooks, it was this great game of, you know, pirates and the baddies and, you know, and it's the kind of strains of nationalism and jingoism that were there in the, in the air come through in his sketchbooks. So we put this online exhibition together and we thought this would just be online because online is a great way of showcasing archives, I think, because often the objects are quite small and they mightn't have a lot of presence in a big exhibition. But online, you know, you can have that intimacy of contact. But as a result, people wanted to actually see the objects. I was going to ask. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it was fascinating yeah. for us. And it totally denies this thing that if you digitize and put things online, the real object loses its value and, and loses its interest because exact opposite happened. People wanted to see the objects and then we mounted a physical exhibition. That is, I mean, that's a brilliant, that's a brilliant counter story to so much of what we hear about digital society. Yeah. Um, and w what was the reaction of the audience once they did come and see those objects themselves? I think they were quite moved because... Uh, some of them were just very small things. The diaries themselves are very harrowing of Cecil Bostock. But the photographs were, you know, they're so kind of poignant of Weaver Hawkins, of this young man on enlisting, very handsome young man, fresh, and then this kind of devastated figure after after the war. You know, he looked like 18 in one photograph and 65 in the next in the space mm -hmm. of two years. And so... Yeah, people were quite moved by them, and they were quite moved by these alternate stories, which weren't particularly heroic, but were kind of stories mm. that many of them 
could associate with because mm-hmm. they had them in their family mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly older people, um, they they this was part of their experience of warfare. Um, and I know, as part of those celebrations nationally, we tried to reflect that. But I think often they do become heroic. You know, you have a big exhibition of major paintings in a gallery, whereas an archive really can get those smaller, forgotten, and that's why we call called it hidden war. Um, I love the um, the different kind of perspectives that you were able to bring to that exhibition with a woman's perspective, with a child's perspective. Uh, was that a deliberate move or was that coincidental, particularly because you'd given away so much of your material? I'd like to say it was deliberate, but it was coincidental. <laughs> um, there you it go. was really just looking at the archive, which is quite great if you do have these things and, and people say, you know, what have you got? And you you go and scrutinise it from a particular perspective. It can throw up you know, really amazing things that you're not sure what's there. Our national narratives around the First World War are so potent. So it's really interesting to think about the different ways that you can approach the idea of the Great War Mm -hmm. through a child's diaries or whatever. That's really interesting. They were really fascinating for us because we hadn't thought of him really, you know, and then we found these things that were really so interesting. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you were able to tease out some of the effects of War Two. not so that, you know, we are coming up to the the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. And of course, it, it it lasted. Its its echo effects were huge across the 20th century. And you captured some of that in ways that so many of those other forms of commemoration didn't. They were much more focused on the conflict itself. Absolutely. And the family of Cecil Bostock, his granddaughter wrote me this lovely letter saying this whole thing was very cathartic for them because, you know, they all loved this man very much, but he became somebody that was poisonous for them to actually have a living contact with. He was destructive of of himself and everybody around. And so the exhibition was really quite an important thing for them. And those those little watercolours, I have this great story, it still makes me very teary when I think about it. The three watercolours that were done by Weaver Hawkins of the French countryside before that horrible carnage his wife, Reen Hawkins, she was a wonderful person, and she handed over maybe four years before all of the archive, and she basically said, whatever is in the studio, whatever is useful, please take. And so I thought I had it all, and then she called me one day, and she was kind of sheepish and said, Stephen, could you come out to the house? I've got something that you know I'd like to give. And I said, oh, but we've got all the archive. And she, and she said, oh, I'm sorry but there's something I kept which I couldn't part with at the time. And then I thought, wow, this must be, you know, really major, mm-hmm. may, maybe of a huge sketchbook or something like that. And then she came out and it was these three ephemeral watercolours, which meant I meant so much to her. It was very, very moving. It was Maybe it meant the kind of the man that she loved and all his possibilities and... You know, it was very, very moving. It still makes me teary when I think about it. So very, in terms of collecting archives, it's something I'll always remember. And I'll remember how valuable that material was to her. And it might seem in a collection ephemeral, but it's so, so precious. What do you think an artist's archive bring to our kind of understanding of war that's different from, say, a soldier writing home his diaries or something like that? What's different about the artist's? 
I think artists often have kind of a ability to put the experience in a wider context mm -hmm. and a maybe slightly more critical voice. Certainly, Weaver Hawkins was like that. He was able to process the experience. He was able to bring a visual context to that because that is often, um, you know, quite shocking and striking in itself. Since that time, we acquired the archive of an artist called Evelyn Chapman, um, and she would have been great to have had at that time, but it was a more recent acquisition. Her father was the New Zealand War um, Graves Commissioner, and so she was given privileged access to all these dreadful sites, particularly in Belgium, and she painted them and took photographs. And just the images are really, um, really, really confronting. Mm. And she kind of imbues these images of these buildings with a kind of personal quality. And she was very interesting because she was a very typical story, particularly of women artists. Um, she was very successful at art school. She was one of the most talented of her years. She was taught by Dottilo Rubo, who really thought she was his most promising student. student. She got married to a man who, from the archive, I hate. <laughs> uh, he was a composer, a very mediocre composer compared to her talent, I think. But, of course, he insisted that she put her uh, career and talent aside so he could pursue his much lesser talent. Um, and so she really was an artist from art school from about 1918 but by the time she married in 1929, that was it. And her archive was left to us by her daughter, who she made sure did not have the same career path. So her artist was a practicing, mm. her daughter was a practicing artist. And there's great letters um, to her daughter saying, you know, keep your own financial security. If, if auntie such and such wants to come and live with you, never allow it. If, <laughs> if need be, rent her an apartment. Keep your independence. It's this most fabulous archive, but it's also great in terms of, um, it's very interesting in terms of her experience of the war and how she documents it. And she, doc and her, she documents it visually, um, which brings another level of understanding, I think. Mm. So I'm I'm hoping for a, another online exhibition of women artists in the 20s and 30s. That would be up. great, yeah. yeah. Sadly, we're now at the end of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website and look for us on your favourite podcast app. There is now 30 episodes, I think, there for your glam listening. This is a podcast made by the Australian Centre for Public History with support from 2SER 107.3. And we just want to say thank you to Steve for coming in. Thank you. It's thank been you. a real pleasure. Fantastic. Fantastic.